Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. I'm joined by Manda Scott. Manda is a veterinarian, an author, a shamanic teacher, and a climate crisis activist. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Joe Lang. In the previous episode, Joe introduced us to the concept of degrees of freedom. We're now going to venture even deeper down that rabbit hole as Joe shows us how some of the really horrific events that fill each day's news can be traced back to the social isolation that results when degrees of freedom are reduced. What has this got to do with climate change? You'll see at the end when Joe brings all the threads together. Which which brings us to that to the rabbit hole that I really wanted to dive down, which is the connection of degree between degrees of freedom and terrorism and isolation. Right. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting piece to this. You know, there are studies which show that people They'll go into areas in Africa and other places whereby there are people living a fairly primitive in terms of our means of evaluation uh, lives. And it's struggle, and it's hard, it's difficult. And yet they're happy, happy folks. Right. Yeah, they're optimistic. And then, in, you know, from a purely, you know, enjoy life point of view, they may be better off. And when you look at it, you see that their degrees of freedom are limited to a certain class of sets, but they come from a community where those uh, limitations are shared. In other words, it's kind of shared by everybody. Everybody's in the same boat. And what we find is that when we look at our degrees of freedom vis-a-vis those around us, we find that it is aversive to, for us to see our uh, degrees are restricted and others are not. Right. It's interesting is that they've done some experiments with monkeys where they'll give a monkey a particular, they have pre- preferences of what they like to eat, what they like to snack on. Some things they'll eat it, but they're not crazy about it, you know. And it's like giving someone a choice of a piece of celery or a you know, piece of, you know, high-end chocolate or something, you know, oh boy, which one would I choose just to have a little snack, right? And what happens is, is that the, uh, they'll happily eat it until they see another monkey getting the preferred snack. Mm. Now, it's like, and they go over there, they shake the cage, and like, what's going on? Right? What the heck's going on? So, again, don't get, go off to the races too much on, on this. We can set up things so that they would act the opposite way. But in general, this is what this is what's happening, right? So the uh, in the example I use there, you've done a really great job. You've worked really hard, and the supervisor comes in, or your boss comes in and says, "You know, Amanda, you did a great job this week. They're really happy with what you've done. Uh, there's going to be an extra five hundred dollars in your paycheck at the end of the month, and you are you're a happy person, right?" Right. Until I discover that you gave Alex twice that. Yes. Until I find Alex finds <laughs> that she, Alex comes in and says, "Did you get your thousand dollar bonus?" 
Yeah. And then I'm deeply distressed. Right. Yeah. Deeply distressed. Yeah. Now, there's been no change in the stimulus, no change in the money, no change in your income there. But what has changed is your assessment of your outcomes vis-a-vis those around you, right? Right. And so what, and there is an, actually a, uh, an economist, he passed away recently, uh, by the name of Gary Becker, Nobel laureate, who actually modeled happiness in this context of alternatives against communities, alternatives, and how it changes over time. It always goes back to the mean. That's why you don't stay happy for long. And he had a great equations that expressed this whole thing. And you know what? He's probably right, because our analysis shows that he's pretty much on target. So in a school situation uh, where you have kids in school and you have one group of kids with a lot of degrees of freedom, in other words, they can get their social consequences from others, which are really important to kids in school. They, uh, a lot of people are, are, they can associate with. They can sit at any table and be welcome. They can in, in basically get into any activity and so forth. And then you have other kids who are limited. They have minimal degrees of freedom in terms of getting those critical social consequences. And they are the ones sitting by themselves at a particular table. They may be limited to the example I had and I've used in uh, one of my papers was uh, you can have uh, opportunity to debate, you can have speaking or debate skills, and you're invited to debate. You have uh, lunch tables, and you, have, and you can have the skills to talk, you're invited to sit. Or you can have dance, there's a school dance, and you have dancing skills, and you're invited to dance. You have uh, to get those critical social consequences coming from each, you have two degrees of freedom. But if you can't dance, even though there's a dance there on Friday night, you're out of luck. Right, or you don't have the opportunity. Uh, you know, there's a, you can sit, you could converse, but nobody invites you. The consequences removed. Right, so I could be basically coerced into debate club, and I could be just like our tennis player, right, Agassiz, right, right, Agassiz, yeah, right, coerced into debate. I could be really good at it, like he was a great tennis player, right, because it's all he could do. That's right. So you have to keep getting better. And so I have zero degrees of freedom, and the other people around me in the school has two, three, four degrees of freedom. How am I feeling? I'm feeling excluded from those opportunities and those behaviors. I'm feeling left out. And here's what else has happened. I'm swimming in a world of adults and others who have control over some of those variables. And they do nothing. Right? They do nothing. And if we look at just the literature on schedule-induced aggression and so on, <laughs> when there's a loss of consequences or a restriction into a smaller cage, and this is a psychological cage, if you will, that the person's in, increases the likelihood of aggression and attack. And so all of a sudden you're getting angry feelings because what the anger is describing is this situation. It, the anger isn't causing it. I don't get angry and that causes me to lash out. Both my lashing out and my anger is a function of these restricted contingencies, right? Both of them are explained by the contingencies. One doesn't cause the other. They occur together. They're part of the same contingency. So what happens over time is I may connect with others who have similar experiences. And so I can form a little group 
in school. And I have now maybe three, four friends, five friends in that group. And I have maybe three degrees of freedom within my group, but I still have zero degrees of freedom between groups. Groups, yeah. Right? And now that group, for whatever reason, says, oh, you know what we're going to do? Uh, we're going to stand out. So they start wearing maybe long coats. Or they do something in the group together, which results in them being even more ostracized by the dominant groups. Ooh, there's that long, long coat group. Ooh, they're strange. Ooh, I don't want to talk to them. And they walk away. So what happens? Well, there's less chance and less frequency of any type of cons good consequences coming from outside their group. So now it intensifies the, the demand. In other words, it potentiates the reinforcers that are occurring within the group. Right? Yep. And so now what happens is you start talking and this group now shares a joint anger. And that we're never going to be anything. We're going to do something. We've got to, we've got to do something that, you know, they're never going to be on stage. They're never going to be known for anything. They're going to be this. And, and, they, and this becomes reinforced within the group. And this is very potent consequences. It has no opportunity to be mitigated by reinforcement from outside the group. And so you get these behaviors then generated to where you might be reinforced for striking out. Oh, you know what? I slashed popular Tim's tires. And the other and people inside the group goes, oh, wow, that was great. That really took guts. That's really something you did that. And now you're kind of a big man in the group, right? And so what we see this process going on whereby inside the group this is happening and why do they hate the teachers so much because they allow this to happen and sometimes they're unwitting conspirators with the larger group because they are pleasantly reinforcing just by saying hello to one person and not another or smile or, or the person who has the more social skills goes up and talks to the teacher and spends two or three minutes in a conversation, and that teacher never has a conversation with me. Hmm. Right? I don't occasion it, but I see that I don't have it. And so the resentment there, and next thing you know, you have a Columbine or some other type of school event. So we can see that these things are occurring out of the restriction of degrees of freedom outside the set, but often increases in degrees of freedom within the set. And that what's being reinforced is is acting on this aggression towards the outside. Now, it could be in the form of just a, uh, uh, oftentimes uh, they'll just ignore it and maybe form a, a, uh, another group that listens to certain types of music and then they can connect. It's not always ends up in, you know, a situation where someone's getting shot, but it can end up in people. Uh, forming, you know, different types of communities and so on, and this. And I was a part of one of those. I mean, when I was growing up, they were they were hippies and long-haired people, and they dressed a particular way, and so on. And they were basically ostracized by the dominant community. And so you tended to congregate with people who were similar. And also, then the verbal behavior within that became uh, reinforced along lines that resulted in you being 
Because if you didn't maintain in that group, where what do you, where where would you go? <laughs> yeah. Right. There's zero degrees of freedom out here. I got some degrees of freedom in here. If I blow it here, my degrees of freedom are restricted. And so the more radical these groups get, the more likely the people within the groups will follow that radical position. And by the way, it's the same way of the of the Stockholm syndrome. That's what's going on there, right? That's what's going on in any type of brainwashing, uh, any type of cult formation. It's the same thing, only, only there you typically uh, have rapid stimulus change. In other words, there's a complete cutoff from the dominant culture. You're in an entirely new event or situation. Behaviors that had historically been effective in the other situations are no longer effective. And so you basically have a breakdown in your typical patterns. Any new patterns that occur are reinforced with a lot of reinforcement within, uh, within the group or by the kidnappers or whomever, right? And so all of a sudden your behavior becomes shaped along that line. It's called boot camp, <laughs> right? Yes, Cordiggia, that's right. Your head puts you in a thing, puts you in Paris Island and screams at you, right? They want right. down your, your, your patterns. That's why they do it. It's also called a monastery, <laughs> right? <laughs> so these practices are not new. <laughs> Right? These are not new practices. People have been doing them for a long time. and uh, But now we understand why they work and what one can do to do it. Now, from the point of view of uh, terrorists, it's the same process, only on a larger scale. And typically, the people who are being brought in this group also have a history of military training. So coming out of the Al-Qaeda whole thing, where, where were they coming from? These were uh, folks who uh, basically looked at their point of view as being ostracized by the dominant community, even within their own cultures. They gathered together, but they were trained fighters. So their repertoires of what was being reinforced are going to take advantage of those. Right? So we, we, we can see where that comes from. The same thing happened in World War II, before World War II, the brown shirts that Hitler used to form his basic initial cult and that attacked people in Kristallnacht and all of this type of thing were World War I veterans who knew how to organize militarily and, and so on, right? Didn't do them very well. Hitler had them all killed <laughs> because he understood the threat that they posed to even him, right? Uh, and their group, right? So he formed his new Nazi cult after they, they had their usefulness. But it was the same type of thing. It's the same issues that you see occurring in countries. You see it uh, occurring in groups, whether they're terrorist groups. You see it occurring in high schools and elementary schools, even middle schools. And the key element for teachers and educators is to recognize this. Okay. Is to say, my question. not just, oh, who's getting harassed, but who degrees of freedom are restricted. What we, can we do to change that? Am I allocating my time to one versus another? Am I not rescuing someone? Now, think of it now as restricted degrees of freedom. You're isolated, and now aversive stimuli are attached through bullying. Whoa. Now you've taken already volatile situation and really exacerbated it. And the teacher standing by and not doing anything about this? Hmm. Now where is this, you know, in a operant chamber, a rat will even go and tear apart an inanimate object under those conditions, right? 
animals across the board will engage in schedule-induced aggression. And all, all range of species have been tested. So this is not atypical of organisms. And so the feelings aren't driving it. It's the conditions under which the behaviors and the feelings are produced that we have to be paid attention to. So what the feelings allow you to do is say, oh, okay, there's something that they're trying to drive away that they want to get away from that's aversive. What is it? How can we help find it? So what people should be doing, instead of just getting people to express how they're feeling, you see this all the time, this little group thing, well, tell us how you feel, tell us well, I want to know what's making you feel this way. What are the stimuli you'd like to drive away? And then we've got to find out why you want that, why those are aversive. Right? Why is that aversive? Right. And then what can I do as a society or a school to change that? So is this being implemented in schools? In, are you able to teach teachers to do what you're saying yeah. and see a, a result? It's infrequent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. My, my wife's school at Morningside Academy, they're pretty sensitive to these, these types of things. And my wife has written papers on this topic. She's actually more of an expert in it when it comes to schools than I am. And once we begin an understanding some of these things, so for example, prejudice, people say, well, I'm prejudiced. What does that mean? Well, it means that you're willing, you're, uh, the behavior of running away or distancing yourself is, from a particular group is reinforced. So in essence, I'm prejudiced against Chinese restaurants means I, I get away from Chinese restaurants, right? I'm prejudiced from short people. <laughs> Again, I don't want to. I, when I see a short person, I walk away. Right? The uh, um, this is all what we mean by prejudice. How about bigotry? Well, bigotry typically involves what? Distance. I'm driving them away. Trying to drive them away. You get and what is the emotion that's around bigotry? People screaming, anger, right? And one, it's white flight, fear of others. Fear of your neighborhood changing, fear of that's describing you moving away. And bigotry, burning a cross in the neighborhood, uh, throwing rocks through windows, driving the person away, right? That's when the word bigotry comes up. Now they overlap. There's distancing in both, and you might get away or you might attack. So they're, they're, you see them overlap. But those are not the same as racism. And this is what makes the, the dealing with racism a little bit more complicated. Because in racism, what you see is that you're using the institutions of a culture, not just the government institutions, but the social and other institutions of a culture, to remove either the opportunity, the means, or the consequences for another. Oh. Yeah. So... I can be racist without being prejudiced or bigoted. <laughs> right? So there was a great article in the 1970s in a, in a journal called The Black Scholar where they showed that in effort in San Francisco schools to encourage minority children, they found that they went in and did the study and that Oftentimes the teachers, very loving teachers, reduce the requirement, workload requirement on the minority kids 
They weren't the same as the white kids. So their A's weren't quite as valuable, uh, showing the same thing as the other A's. And they thought they were doing this out of the goodness of their hearts, but actually it was removing them critical skills. Mm. Yeah. And so their name of the article was Racism Without Racists. Wow. So anytime we are actually, and this is so, it's it's a very much more complex issue to deal with is racism. That's why it's it's so difficult to deal with because we think of it as prejudice and bigotry, and it's not. And actually, um, there are occasions where someone speaks, you know, gets together their buddies and says nasty things about people, but yet in their behavior and interacting with others in terms of providing the opportunities and means of the consequences are actually quite good across groups. They're not as racist, even though they talk a good racist game. So this is a much more complex type of, of situation than we typically generally uh, acknowledge. And there was a radio broadcaster in Chicago by the name of Lou Palmer back in the day who actually first mentioned something like this that got me thinking about it, that racism isn't simply not liking somebody. And the truth is, no one cares if you like them or not. They just don't want you to, to use the institutions to, uh, to remove your degrees of freedom. Right? Who cares? I don't care if you like me. Don't. I don't like you either. But I'm not going to do something which moves your opportunities, your means, or your consequences and restricts your degrees of freedom. So the emphasis on whether we like someone or not and getting to know someone. There's a great example here in the city of Seattle just recently. And that is a uh, Seattle has very segregated schools for the most part. Yet it is one, considered one of the city's most, the country's most liberal and progressive cities. And what is it? Well, parents, white progressive parents who have good incomes, oh, about a quarter of the parents, a third of the parents, send their kids to private schools. They don't send them to public schools. Uh, right? Yeah. All right. So the population of available, most of them are white. So the population of available white kids are, are, are restricted. Then when they do move into a particular neighborhood, since you can go to any school you want, they have the ability to have nannies and other things and drive their kids to schools. Oh, I want my kids to school this good school on the north side rather than stay on the south side and mix with the kids in the south side. And so what you're seeing is that good people who socialize with people of color even, um, who vote liberal all the time, are engaged in promoting racist activities. And so there's a movement here in town called Parents Must Integrate. And there's a movement to er educate parents and take it on a personal level and for them to understand the opportunities it gives their own child to be in an integrated area. And it's having some effect. It's actually parents who come and understand these variables and understand by their actions what they're doing and that they're uh, having the effect on others are beginning to understand they can have a good effect, effect on their kids as well and won't stop them from getting into Harvard. Because they're not getting into Harvard anyhow, let's face it. Right, right. <laughs> but, the, uh, but everybody thinks their kids going to Harvard. So by making these variables known and having people examine their lives, 
and their community situations in relation to these can actually, I believe, have a, a good impact. So I'm, I'm sure at this point there are people listening to this who are thinking, what in the world has this got to do with climate change and horses and regenerative agriculture and all the rest of this? Those are probably good questions. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually see a lot of connections in terms of what's coming at us. Right. Because as the effects of climate change intensify, the choices, the the opportunities that some groups are going to have That's right. are going to become increasingly restricted. That's right. And they're not going to be happy campers, are they? No, they are not. And the more we understand some of these dynamics, right. exactly. I think the better we can, I don't know whether we, I want to say manage them, but I think we need to have an understanding beyond the the sort of gut reaction that we get through the news. That's right, and the uh, and and the idea of you know some of the choices we have to make for the environment. One of the con- critical consequences that are made uh, uh, there that are, are resulting in us making bad choices, and can we as a society or a government supply those critical consequences uh, and let the other you know consequences have their effect? Um, so if I have to work in a particular job that uh, requires me to use a lot of fossil fuel, you know, is there a job I can work in that doesn't? Or can I change it in some way? Can I get subsidized for doing, if, uh, if I necessarily have to? Maybe there has to be supplemental income uh, to offset the higher costs of green behavior so that I, I can make that choice and so on. So there's policies that one could, if one started looking and mapping out the alternatives and the contingencies involved in those, there are policy decisions that could be made that maybe could be made a little smarter if we understood these relations. So in, in terms of, uh, it's like which rabbit hole to, to go down. So in, in terms of shifting behavior and we have the the climate deniers right now let's i think interesting would be how you think they're denying it well they're part of a group from which they are are reinforced and people who are uh outside them attack them and so on call them names and they get in and they share emails with each other and they and they you know they share and they share fake news with each other and and so on and they're you know they have more degrees of freedom within that than outside so the question has to be, is if I'm looking at this, I don't attack them. I try to assimilate by providing reinforcers necessary. In other words, look at it as what behavior do they have going on that I can currently reinforce? All right, how can I begin to, is there anything at all? So they'll say, well, yeah, but it's not, uh, the climate's changing, but it's not man-made. And you can then say, well, what's, oh, okay, uh, well, you know, you've got to come ground now the climate's changing. Right. This is what's happening now, right? So what do you think we have to do in order to mitigate this natural climate change? You know, we could, perhaps the CO2 in the air is from some natural change in the earth and, and things are happening. Uh, what do you think about these agricultural processes that would be better given a changing climate? <laughs> Yes. Why do we have to argue with them about whether it's a human made or not, right? Right. 
you know, give some some reinforcement. Bring them some reinforcement in to the group and the problem solving around that would be my approach to to and what I have taken to some of the deniers. Rather than argue with them about whether it's human made or not. Right? I mean no one I very few now are denying the climate's change not changing. Yes. And you know, and you come up and say something like, Hey, you know what I just read the other day, it's really fascinating. That a warming earth can actually result in an ice age in some places. Isn't that wild? So what that does is that gets this whole notion of some places are colder, so therefore there's no climate change. Yes. Bring in certain bits of information that are looked at like, wow, not, not, not in a confrontational way, but in a kind of an amazed way, right? Wow, I just had my mind blown. You know, the, uh, turns out we could have an ice age because of this doggone uh, changing climate getting warmer. Wow, science is a wild thing. No, that's the way I basically do it. Yeah. So rather than attacking, ostracizing, calling them um, completely off the wall, nut, nut jobs and so on, um, one can actually begin to bring people along by finding just the way we, you know, same way you bring along a horse, right? <laughs> you find out what it's doing close to what you, that's the, where can I start? Yeah. You don't require the horse to do the terminal behavior right at the beginning, or it's it's my way or the highway horse. You know, it's you got to do this terminal behavior, or, or I'm I'm going to put you down. No, you start with uh, shaping it, and this is the way we should I, I think treat most of the opposition groups. You know, there was a guy who uh, with an uh, African American gentleman who uh, converted over 200 Klansmen. I know of him. But Amanda does it, so... Yeah, and he basically did it by befriending them and sharing moments with them and sharing a beer and talking about kids and family and overlap, right? And all of a sudden they said, you know, this guy isn't so bad. You know, he met his family and he, and he you know, and he bought me a beer at the bar and, and all of a sudden these things matter. And so I think we have to understand that uh, it's difficult to do because we find some of the behavior repugnant, right? And so it is difficult, but I think it's something we need to think about. So I, th I think we need practice and we need, because the first time you encounter this, it's like, well, duh, yeah, of course. But then when you are out in the real world, so to speak, we don't yet have a broad enough repertoire to be fast enough on our feet to open those doors like manda your description of what was it marshall's book of mm, uh yeah. the person who went up into alberta yeah can you describe that briefly because that was a good example um th this was george marshall who wrote the book and he went to alberta and he spent two weeks interviewing albertans he invited them all into the town hall and saying what are you proud of and he got the list of we are proud albertans we provide the energy for the rest of the world and we do it by our hard work and our industry and we are essential to the functioning of Western industry. And he reframed it for them in we are proud Albertans, we provide the energy for the rest of the world and we are essential to Western industry, but we all work for exactly the same oil company. And if it goes down, that's probably quite fragile. But we know how to make energy and we have sun and we have wind and we have water and we could be making energy for the Western industry from all these other ways. And 
we would still be proud Albertans, you know, creating the energy for the world. So he was able to reframe their sense of self in a way that allowed them more degrees of freedom, actually, listening to you, of, of how to earn a living. You know, I've got skills and they are transferable in other estates than just the oil industry. Yeah, there's another way of, of phrasing that. Then I, I have problem with terms like sense of self. Okay. It's an inference made by the behaviors of the people we're talking to. But what we're really saying is we've come in contact with the critical consequences that are, are maintaining their behavior. Okay. We're sensitive to the, not to the topography, if we say, of what they're saying, but what they're saying, what's governing saying that. Okay. So what I'm looking at is when I look at people who say things to me like this, I say, okay, why are you saying that to me? You know, what's important to you? So are you talking to George Marshall or are you talking to the people? He's to, uh, yeah, to people. In other words, okay. I'm looking at, at what, what, what a sense of self is really saying is there are certain consequences that are maintaining my behavior that okay. I'll work to produce that I find valuable, right? Okay. And so my conversations tend to be derivative of those, of those consequences. Sometimes I'm listening to the content and I miss what the consequence is. So in this okay. case, when he says, oh, what they're saying is, you know, I want to have an impact on energy. Um, I'm in an energy business. I'm making money doing that. And I also creating energy for the world. Well, that's their consequence, right? Doing that type yeah. of thing. Now saying, oh, well, that consequence can be gotten by doing this as well. Hmm. And, and it can have these other impacts. You go, oh, okay. Oh, I, can, I see that. Oh, all right. That makes sense, right? So you're speaking to the consequence. I know I was, I've been speaking to people on healthcare issues and so on. And when people say, well, I don't, I don't like these government-run health pro programs and so forth. And, and I say, well, um, what, what, what kind of medical experience would you like to have? In other words, I don't, I don't, as, I don't go and argue about that. I say, so tell me, what, what kind of medical experience would you like to have? If, if you could have the type of medical experience and, and payment and so on from your, the ideal insurance policy, what would it be like for you? And they'll explain that, oh, I'd go to the doctor. I could get an appointment when I wanted to. I could, I could uh, when I get there, I wouldn't have a big copay. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have all the, a deductible and this type of thing and so forth. You know, I'd, I'd say, but what would you have? Oh, well, I'd be able to go to the doctor. I'd be able to go at such and such. I'd walk out with this, uh, and they'll describe. I could choose any doctor I want, and so on and forth, and, and so forth. And I'll say, "Is that what you have now?" Hmm. No. <laughs> All right. What do you have now? Well, I have to go through my insurance company. I have to get approval for this. They can get turned down for that. You can do that. So it sounds pretty aversive. Yeah. Well, what if you had a system, and how much would you pay for this? Right. And you start putting it this way, and all of a sudden, the Medicare for All can be a, a really easy sell. We so need you working for one of the politicians, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the politicians never... I, I, I sit and listen to this stuff and say, guys, you could frame this in a way that you could sell this overnight to people, right? Well, why are you not going... This is why we're having this podcast, Nanda. Yes, yes, yes because I'm the, not sure we're reaching the core people that I know, but at least we'll reach some... We'll reach yeah. a handful of people who haven't heard it before. And, you know, you just never know who's listening because, yeah, because we need people to be listening to this. Yeah, and I, and I know how to handle 
Donald Trump. So how would you handle? Yeah, so, okay, yeah, tell so us. tell so, us. <laughs> so how would you handle Donald Trump or Look who is also Boris Johnson? Trump uses basically a uh, quick little similes or metaphors to attach a particular response to his opponents, right? Yep. Crooked Hillary, right? This type of thing, right? Uh, Sleepy Joe, uh, Biden, and so forth. And so we all know that he speaks nonsense, and these uh, but people don't care because they get a, a laugh out of it, or they or they they do, you know, they they the visual is still there, Pocahontas in the case of uh, Warren. Well, it's it, so they need to turn the tables on him, but not in a way that attacks him, but his behavior. And so what they have to do is simply say, Donald Trump said he went to Washington to drain the swamp and instead created a cesspool. And every and and just and, and all we get is more out of the cesspool. And every time he makes a statement, just say, more out of the cesspool. And all you and what that would do is that conjures up an image of just floating crap, right? And, yeah. and so on, and people look at it and just laugh. Well, more on the cesspool. He go and he go, you know, you know, more, more from the cesspool. That you know, that, and that that'd be my response. I wouldn't argue. I just say more on the cesspool. And people just people would just nod their head and say, "Yep, that's right. It's coming out of the cesspool." And he would have. <laughs> what's he going to say? No, I'm not a cesspool. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't work. Don't think of an elephant. But what are you if you're not the cesspool? Right, so you could put him in a position where it would be very difficult for him to get away from that, and so you categorize his remarks as coming from that. Not, not that he is, uh, you know, some type of uh, physical characteristic or something that would, would uh, you know, or deranged Donald. People have said, no, no, just make it that is you know, more from the cesspool. Oh, and these so and so, he goes. You know, yeah. You know, and that's all I'd say. And I just dismiss. I'd be dismissive, which would make him even crazier. But nobody, you know, he's, they won't listen to me. <laughs> I've told campaign workers, you know, this is all you got to do to handle this guy. But they won't. They won't. Listen. And they're not doing it. What's happening? You no, know, they they get in this back and forth, or they they get into all sorts of things, and they just got to be. They but they have to be dismissive with a one word that conjures that's connected to something else that's extended to Trump, right? A visual. Yeah, yeah. And we're back to embodied metaphors again. That's a, It's a very embodied metaphor. That's exactly right. And, you know, all these highfalutin paid consultants they have, they don't come up with any of this stuff. I, I, I don't seem to understand why. But We'll get you a job, Joe, as a highly paid <laughs> consultant. It'll be good. <laughs> I, can I ask a question on something and take it off on a different tangent just for a moment? Go ahead, go ahead and ask it. Yeah. Okay, so we are taking the virus slightly more seriously here in Britain than you guys are. <laughs> I listen to your conversation. Um, Locally, we're pretty pretty serious. Yeah, okay. yeah, but, yeah we're pretty hysterical so in let's, New York. Let's assume that, that things in Britain are not looking great. My, I have been suggesting, as far as I can, up the echelons of power, that this would be a really good time to instigate universal basic income because everybody's going to yes. have to stay home, but they're terrified that they'll have no money. Leaving aside the economics of it, because that's a whole separate argument, I'm interested in the behaviour of 
Because what I was thinking was, I wonder, my assumption was that that would increase people's concept of their own degrees of freedom. But if everybody is given the same, perhaps it doesn't. And I'm interested if, Joe, if you have a thought about that. I, I, I haven't thought about it in terms of degrees. I have two thoughts about the uh, uh, okay. uh, UBI, and I also have the thought about, um, which I think are disconnected from or not connected to the coronavirus issues. Uh, what is being proposed in the United States, uh, by at least the Democrats in the Congress, is that people will be paid for sick leave. So if you have to take sick leave because you're diagnosed with the virus or required to be quarantined because you came in contact with someone, you would be paid as your normal salary for two weeks and the businesses would be off, wouldn't have to pay for, for okay. the government would pay for uh, those two weeks. So that way it, lim it limits the amount of money. It's not giving everybody a thousand bucks a month or whatever, whatever it is. It would be targeted to the people who are, who are uh, basically, and, th and there are many large corporations. Apple, I believe, is giving unlimited sick time to employees. And I tell you it's paid. But, you know, they have $200 billion in the bank. Right. Exactly. That doesn't that doesn't help. That Joe's shoe store doesn't help. Uh, doesn't yeah. help right. That, right. So Joe's shoe store needs their employees to be. They can't afford to pay them if they're not there producing, particularly if they don't have any customers. Sure. So yeah. the so the government then needs to step in and do that type of thing. I think that is critical, and that will stave off a lot of of, of misery and angst and and so on, and keep the some dollars flowing into the economy. Exactly. Yeah. Keeps the oil in the system. And so that, that is one thing. Universal income is another interesting topic because I think what that allows people to do is to dabble in alternatives. And I do think that's, uh, I'm actually a fan of universal basic income and what it could do in order of this. Now, the little experiments that have been done on that, the results have been equivocal. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see. But I would, I would think that if every person and, you, and, and, the, and the thing about making it so that everybody gets it, we make assumptions about what's important, whether that $1,000 is important if you're making 100000 a year, if you're making 15000 a year. It could be important to that person making 100000 a year too because you don't know what their obligations are. You don't know what they're doing and what that would allow them to do in terms of the kids, in terms of the economy and so on. So I'm kind of in favor of giving it to everybody. Oh, so I have been in favor of universal basic services, which I think is a, a much fairer way of doing it, because I would have the one thing that I have a real problem with UBI is if you give everybody a thousand dollars and the landlords put up the rent by $999, all you have is a very efficient way of channeling public money into private hands. Well, yeah, but the, but the market will govern that. Right. Markets. I'm. I'm not a great fan of markets. They don't behave the way you expect. Put a couple hundred bucks, and people say, "Ooh, I better uh, build more apartment buildings." I mean, the. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, yeah. that's, that's. I. What I don't like is the. I like the notion of the universal basic income, because there are no requirements placed on people. Mm. That you know, if it's basic services, then I have to get in line for the service. Then I have to apply for the service. I have to do all this. You know, it's a it's a rope. Not if it's universal. If if your if your water, power, housing, if those are universal, you don't have to get in line. Your power is your power. 
it just is. I want to hitchhike across the United States for three months. I'm not going to be using any of those things. That's true. <laughs> was, uh, uh, which I did, by the way. That's why I pulled that. Okay, but you would. But if healthcare, for instance, is universal, and you get hit by a car, you would have your universal healthcare. Well, I think it, that is a separate thing. I think uh, healthcare should be universal. Okay, this this could get very complicated. Cause I'm right. So there are. Right. I'm not opposed <laughs> to universal services in uh, in certain contact. I just like the idea of having a thousand dollars I can spend any way I want. Yeah, yeah, I just see. Yeah, I just think you have to be careful that it doesn't become a way of channeling public money into private health. a better brand of cigar. <laughs> there you go. And Alex and I could buy I better brands of horse industry, right? So. <laughs> yeah. But all that, sm- all that smoke going up into the air from your well, better cigar. Yeah, and now yeah, we're yeah. right back to climate change and yeah, air pollution. Well, maybe yeah. it's better because it produces cleaner smoke. <laughs> it could be. It could be. It could be. Well, we've had an amazing conversation so and you have Thank given you. us an enormous amount to uh to th- to think about so i am deeply appreciative of this and i think matt you've made our head spin we'll probably have yeah. i suspect manda and i will be having a, a conversation as an offshoot of this of so how does all of this tie in with all of the other things that we have been right. talking about now that you manda have have heard this we can have an even more interesting conversation so thank you immensely okay. right, well, yeah. well i had a lot of fun excellent uh, we had lots of fun all right really yeah. exciting yeah all right yeah. and let me know when it airs and i'll be sure to avoid it so <laughs> wise move very good okay. all, all right, right. All right. bye have a good thank day you. Take care. bye-bye bye When we started out in part one of this conversation, you may well have been wondering, where in the world are we going with all of this? How is this related to climate change? I thought the Horses for Future podcast was going to talk about pasture management. What is all this degrees of freedom about? What has that got to do with anything? But you stayed with us. And now hopefully you understand why I so wanted to share Joe's presentation with all of you. The coronavirus is giving us a taste of how quickly things can change in our very connected world. More than ever, we need to learn how to talk with one another, with one another, not at one another or to one another, but truly with one another. We need to learn how to communicate in ways that other people can hear and respond to in a way that makes a positive connection, and leads to actions that are going to benefit the planet. So thank you for staying with us to the end. You can help out even more by sharing this podcast with others. I said to Joe, more people need to hear this, and I really meant it. So if you've got friends who know nothing about horses and would never think of listening to the Horses for Future podcast, I get that. But please do let them know that they might find this of interest. They don't have to know anything about horses to find Joe's talk of real value. So remember, it's not just horse people who can make a difference. We all can. And what's more, what this virus is showing us is we really need to.
Thank you for listening. And next time, we'll begin a new conversation.